Welcome back to the Turner Podcast. Um, I'm Ethan, and with me, as always, is Kevin. Hey, everybody. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Katie Lewis from. Do we say you're from Texas Tech or Texas A&M or? I'm not sure the. So I would say that I am from both so that I don't get in trouble with either. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I am with Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Texas Tech University located in Lubbock, Texas. So you have uh, classroom responsibilities as well as research responsibilities? I do. I have a joint appointment with the two institutions with 75% of my appointment being research and then the remaining 25% being teaching. So I teach both an undergraduate and graduate level soil fertility course at Texas Tech. Good. So um, I know Katie from when we were both at Texas A&M, so we have a little bit of a uh, you know, of history of working together. So we thought, why not bring in the state of Texas leading expert in soil fertility? So even though if it is a, you have to work with tech some, I mean, I know. At least this time we're not, we, I'm not outnumbered by the people from that purple place. That, oh, you know, come on so. now. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so usually we get stuff started. We have a couple questions. That we okay. always ask people, if you were a bird and could fly anywhere in the world, especially during Corona times, oh, and man. you can't really fly, where would you fly? Oh, that's an excellent question. So my first instinct was Australia. That's a long flight. Interesting. No, yeah, flight. but you know, I mean, because my second thought was maybe somewhere in Colorado, but we can drive there. So it's, sure. you know, might as well if I'm going to fly. I'm going to fly somewhere I can't drive, so <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go exactly. to Australia. For sure. Yeah. Um, then the, the second question we always like to ask people to kind of bring it back is what is your favorite, I know you do fertility, but what is your favorite crop to work with? Cotton. See that? That's see. We're in Texas, especially too predictable. So I will say. So I love. I I understand cotton. I feel like it is my strongest crop to work in. But I'm becoming more and more interested with peanuts. I love peanuts. Yeah, they're they're so much fun. You know the best thing about peanuts, especially being in South Texas, I can see across them. Is down here sometimes <laughs> you have surprises in cornfields. So, yeah. Yeah, that's but, a good point. Yeah, so uh, so being as you work with fertility, what is your favorite nutrient to work with? This is a new one that I just thought of. I'm I'm gonna be boring and I'm gonna say nitrogen, but I, several reasons why. Um, first one is that it is our most limiting nutrient when it comes to crop production um, in agronomic systems. And it's so dynamic. I mean, there's so many potential ways that it can be lost from the soil, whether it be gaseous forms or leaching. And so it really, you know, we may see it as more of a simple nutrient, but it's, it's pretty difficult to manage and to get good use efficiency of the fertilizer we're applying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we'll kick off to the meat and potatoes of this uh, podcast. So, Katie, you're, uh, we're going to have you on this week, which we'll probably have you on for more episodes, but this one we're going to focus on soil health and the practical 
applications and implications maybe I, mm-hmm. just, I don't know if that's the right word or not but uh <laughs> of uh of soil health and that it's been a bit of a buzzword um you know unfortunately in agriculture uh it's not unfortunate but uh, the end user uh is what drives what we do and mm-hmm. you know in our area with vegetable production we see it all the time you know you, you have to have a pretty squash you can't just have a lot of them if they look if they look gross you're not going to sell them so um i I think with the soil health that's kind of a stretch but it's a similar um thing that has been a buzzword um so uh you've been doing some work with it i I guess i'll kind of yield the floor to you for the the microphone to you for a little while and see what you get quickly ethan um in texas has there um been any equip money or any money for running the soil test or soil health test for your producers? I haven't heard of any. You haven't? Because in Kansas, there in Oklahoma, there has been farmers getting into that uh, as far as being able to get money from the NRCS office uh, to do the test. So I just was curious if that was the case in Texas or not. Well, yeah, no, I, I think we there use, may uh, be some cost share for <laughs> Uh, sorry, phone call. That's very unprofessional of me. I will now put my phone on silent. So, Katie, what were you, what were you saying? About, so, I know in Texas that there are some cost share programs that will help um, with the cost of the cover crop seed. And then I've been told from some of our NRCS agents that um, they can, there is some equip funding, but it, it's really difficult to, gotcha. to get Gotcha. Yeah, this is a general rule of thumb, Kevin. When it comes to the government, most no, most Texans don't have. <laughs> doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. We just don't like the government in general. Oh man, it's getting so, ready. Oh, uh, uh, on. It, well, so yeah. it, it's not. Well, it's not necessarily a political statement. It's a. Yeah. It's a complete anti-political statement. Yeah. Texans don't like the government. So, <laughs> if there was funding to be available, there's a good chance that farmers just don't even know who to call them. Asking. Yeah. Well, and I've been told too that the paperwork is ridiculous, and so a lot of farmers get turned away from wanting to mess with it because sure. of the amount of paperwork. Yeah. I know um, one of the labs we work with, uh, American Labs, they, within the last two years, have geared up to do the test, whereas previously, oh, nice. you know, they were outsourcing it. So, they're, it's got to be catching on somewhere, you know, yeah. uh, for them to w- be willing to gear, gear up to do that special test in-house. Yeah. Oh, and I think it is. And maybe that's a good direction to go with this conversation is, you know, what does soil health really mean? And I think there are so many different, you know, thoughts and ideas about soil health. And so it's been really difficult for labs to really pinpoint what it is that they're going to include in that assessment just because so, there are so many different parameters. Is there as like, is does there been standardized at all? So is this, this the term soil health? Does it, it? It's not been standardized. It's like a nitrogen test, or I just say a soil test in general. Yeah. Malic free is a standard. Yeah. The sodium bicarb test is a standard. Is there any, you know, just for you know the guys that are planting corn in you know the Rio Grande Valley right now? Listen to this. And do, is there a standard test that they can go and ask for? 
Um, so you can go into certain labs and ask for the soil health assessment, which you're still going to have to make some choices from there as to what parameters to include. Because um, you can go um, as extensive as you want, even to the extent of looking at phospholipid fatty acids, which would tell you the bacteria and the fungi that are in your soil. Um, that seems so incredibly expensive. Oh, it is. PLFAs are going to be at least $50 a sample. Wow. Yeah. And then, so it is, it's an expensive test because it is more time consuming, um, the measurements that they're conducting. But I think it really goes back, and there have been a lot of efforts by NRCS, the Soil Health Institute, to try to standardize so more of what you're talking about. You know, what are going to be the parameters that we should include? Um, in a soil health assessment that are going to give us the best idea of soil health. So in my opinion, soil health is really no different than soil quality or soil tilth. The biggest difference with soil health is that we have started discussing more of the biological components of our soil. Um, but we know without biological activity or the biological activity is going to influence everything from our nitrogen availability to our soil pH to our cation exchange capacity. So personally, I think about soil health more of that interaction between the chemical, the biological, and the physical aspects of our soil. And to have a highly functioning soil, we have to have each one of those components contributing. For sure. Um, so we have been doing quite a bit of work. Um, one of the things that I hear most often, most often from biologists that like to work in agronomy, is that we need to be managing our systems um, to get them back to a native state. And uh, did y'all freeze? I'm sorry. No. No. Oh, okay. Um, so we need to get our, our managed systems, we need to be managing them as if they were native or getting them back to that native state. And we conducted some research in 2018 where we collected soil samples from a long-term no-till cover crop plot has been in place for 22 years. And then we found a similar uh, soil texture that was on a, a native site, according to NRCS records, hadn't been plowed for at least 80 years. And we collected soil samples from these two locations and went through 19 different assessments on these soil samples. And from a biological standpoint, we were doing just as well in the cover crop managed system than we were in the native system. And it makes sense. We're adding greater organic material to the soil in those managed systems. So we're stimulating microbial activity um, and the nutrient cycling that we would want in these systems compared to that native side. Native is not always better. No, it's you know, not. Because I don't want to have to consult on native corn or teosinte <laughs> that would be terrible yeah, yeah. Uh, we would be a lot there would be lots of hungry uh cattle there in the feedlots you know exactly but, but that, that you know that's that's an important thing though when you think about it you'd almost wonder if uh, in a farmed ecosystem if you wouldn't be better because things are are thriving a little bit better you know you're you're adding moisture when a native, you know, I'm assuming it's native, it's probably not going to have irrigate, ir oh, irrigation over it. Yeah. 
you know. Um, well, you know, that kind of plugs into another buzzword going on right now and it's sustainability. Mm-hmm. Or regenerative. <laughs> and, yeah. And so yeah. Like, I believe that's kind of the aim for those two buzzwords, you know, is we need to get back to that that natural state <laughs> of yeah. the soil, you know, that it's it's better. So that, yeah. that's interesting. I I was talking to an industry colleague of mine and she made a comment about, you know, we're trying to regenerate. What are we trying to regenerate to? She works a lot in the New Mexico area. Mm -hmm. And if you look around soils there, the standards aren't real high to try to regenerate the soil, you know? (laughs) So, and I would say the same for even some areas here in the high plains. For sure. For sure. Well, you start going towards the coast when you have extremely weathered, you know, say like around Florida or Georgia or some of that peanut country over there, it's extremely weathered soils. There's, I mean, why, and what does native mean? Does that mean parent material? I mean, how, how, when, when do we draw the line of native? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. Yeah. You know, like, it was native everything after say the 1700s. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, I see what they're getting at, but yeah, um, it seems very subjective to. It's very qualitative, you know. If we're going to do a nitrogen test, we know how many pounds of nitrogen we're done with that test or in that sample. Yeah, yeah. I don't do well with qualitative. I'm more of a quantitative person. Uh, I like to to see the numbers. Yeah, and I guess that's maybe why you know, like folks like Kevin and I that are much more. Uh, just in our in our field as consultants, you have to produce numbers and value. Sure. Does this does is this uh, if we're going to spray for earworms in this uh, in this corn crop, is it going to be economically sound to pay yeah. for that uh, pay for that application? So um, so practically, where do we move into soil health? Like where does kind of the rubber meet the road from a farmer's perspective yeah. if he is concerned about soil health? So. My husband farms. He farms cotton in Terry County area, very sandy soils, limited irrigation. And we do see the benefits to having a cover crop. You know, I'd like to say that we should be implementing rotations as our conservation practice, but a lot of times the infrastructure isn't there. So if he were to implement a wheat crop or a corn crop into his system, he would have to get it hauled 60 miles to Lubbock. And at that point, you know, there goes all your profit. And so really in order to implement conservation practices, in his case, it's going to be using a cover crop. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the research that we have for the Southern High Plains would indicate that you're going to see a yield reduction with a cover crop, and nobody can afford that. Um, Not only are you paying for the cover crop seed, but you're also going to see a yield reduction. And so my goal over the last three to four years has really been trying to optimize it. Cause we know that there are going to be biological benefits. There's going to be um, physical benefits to the soil from the cover crop. It's going to increase um, infiltration, water storage, reduce evaporation losses. And so really trying to figure it out because at this point in time, I would say with limited irrigation, a cover crop is risky practice um, just because you don't know if you're going to have the timely rainfall to make up the deficit of soil moisture that's generated from the cover crop. 
And so the research that we've been looking at, first it was to validate whether or not soil moisture is a limiting factor following a cover crop. And we have shown that with adequate irrigation, um, you can make up that deficit. And if you look at soil moisture to a 60 inch depth in the profile, we actually have greater soil moisture where the cover crop has been in place long term compared to a conventional till system. And so there is a greater yield potential because we have greater moisture present. However, we're still seeing a yield reduction with the cover crop. So the next step was to start looking at some of the nutrient dynamics and what's going on. And Something that, that Ethan and I have talked about is, you know, reading through magazines um, related to cover crops and soil health, um, they would indicate that you can reduce your fertilizer application rates because the cover crops are going to add nutrients. Well, unless you're including a legume planted at a pretty heavy rates, um, you're not going to get just a whole lot of nitrogen fixation, especially in our environment following cotton. Well, well just, and we'll stop for a minute. So, uh, oh, you're good. sorry. Yeah, sorry. So great. we're talking about implementing legumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in our, we grow, we grow a fair amount of peanuts down here and we still put nitrogen on our peanuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even sometimes even legumes don't even support themselves. Exactly. So like, yeah. so like when you're, when you're thinking about like a peanut crop or maybe soybeans, something that's been selected and bred to be a peak performing uh, seed and plant. Now you're talking about a legume cover crop. Yeah. That's much more close to native, a native species than, um, so it's not going to be as efficient. Exactly. So it it's going to do very little. <laughs> yeah. You know, so anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, you're good. Cover crop. Are you, have you been looking at like specifically? So we, um, mostly small grains, so wheat and rye. Okay. Um, but then we've also looked at more of a a mixed species that includes things like hairy vetch, radish. Um, we've looked at some pea this year. We started, uh, just a variety clover type trial to see what clovers maybe do might do well in this area. Um, and then my colleague in Vernon, Paul Lawn, he's done quite a bit of experimenting when it comes to different cover crop species and legumes that he's gotcha. looking at. Gotcha. Yeah. So the nitrogen aspect. So I personally am one just based on previous research, things that have been conducted, plus what we've been doing for the last three years. I believe that you are still going to have to add nutrients to these systems. They're not going to support themselves, you know, especially in our um, sandier soils with just inherently low organic carbon. You're going to have to have nutrients added into that system to support the system. So does that come into effect with the carbon and nitrogen ratios? Yes. Look at you remembering what you learned in college. (laughs) I'll tell you why. So we've also, not much anymore, we used to grow our carrots. Uh And there's one thing about a carrot harvesting machine is it doesn't, they leave quite a bit. So carrots can become a very, they can really put out of whack the carbon and nitrogen ratio. Uh And when you, and you also, when you go to cotton, and you're growing, you know, four to five bale cotton, the lignin on uh, versus cellulose 
is a lot tougher to degrade on cotton stalks. And so we'll actually fertilize cotton stalks sometimes to get them to break down. Oh, wow. If and not when nobody's gonna go buy a fertilizer, but if you have some left over in the tank, yeah. you, may pump, you may pump some 32 out, yeah. you know, just so it doesn't salt out over the winter, and you'll see that breakdown. So I was, I, I say this because I was curious if uh, the, you know, if you're safe, you're using like a turnip or a radish, because that's starting to become popular in mm-hmm. our area. Is turnips, radishes, and then a small grain mix. Will that carbon and oxygen ratio be something that we're concerned with on with when it comes to nutrient management? Yeah, and in the next crop. So I think what's going to be more important is to consider the carbon and nitrogen ratios below ground, because if we think about okay. it, that's what's going to be decomposing more quickly. And with our small grains, depending on when it's terminated, it can be in that range that is going to be problematic. Um, so it could actually be tying up your nitrogen you're using. Exactly. It's intended for the crop. Yeah. By the time it's broke down and it's been burned up, just trying yep. to stabilize that carbon ratio. Exactly. Okay. So most often than not, your microorganisms are going to outcompete the plant for taking up plant available forms of nitrogen, phosphorus, boron, just in order to maintain their decomposition processes. Just looking for a free meal. Man, I could call I know, yeah. <laughs> they're greedy little things. And they're super inefficient, too. You know, that's one of the problems with the microbes is, you know, they're decomposing all this organic material, and they're releasing 75 to 80% of the carbon as CO2. Um, and so... You know, it's kind of finding that happy balance. I really think that they're doing more than they are, more good than they are harm, but still they are contributing to so our. We're our still future. looking for that good part, but yeah. <laughs> I quite got there yet. Oh, well, you know, yeah. so they help with soil structure. They do. I, I, have, I tell you what, soil structure is something that we do not talk about in the ag community nearly enough. Exactly. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, contributes to our potassium issues that we see if we do have compaction. Um, soil structure is extremely important. And I say that, that but I, I do also love a good plow. I, I, <laughs> I, I, there is nothing that smells better than a mold borer on its fifth trip and you're about to plant peanuts, man. So do you remember yeah. what that smell, what's what's creating I, that smell? There is a bacteria. Yeah. I forget what it is. my seeds, but geosmins. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Uh, um, so, you know, you, it's like a guilty pleasure when you see that. And it's just, yeah, you know, no. especially with vegetables and peanuts, it has such a, I mean, perfect, beautiful, even stand. Uh-huh. But, you know, that fifth trip across the field probably wasn't needed, but it, look, it looks pretty. <laughs> that's when, we, that's when we call it recreational tillage. For sure. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah that is, uh, uh, that diesel isn't cheap, so. Yeah. yeah. But uh, sorry, we got sidetracked. We're talking about carbon and nitrogen. Where were we at? I'm sorry. Carbon and nitrogen ratios. And so, um, yes, depending on what the carbon and nitrogen ratio is, and as you mentioned, the composition of the organic material as far as lignin, cellulose, um, that can all influence the rate of decomposition as well as um, whether or not nitrogen is being released through mineralization or. being taken up by those microbes or immobilized. And so a lot of times I think what's happening where we are implementing a cover crop and we're producing these large amounts of organic material, we're stimulating microbial activity, they're going to work decomposing that organic material and they're immobilizing any 
plant available forms of nitrogen in the soil. And so then when it comes time to planting our cash crop, be it cotton, whatever it is, then that nitrogen is not going to be available when the crop needs it early on in its, its growth cycle. So um, we've started looking at not necessarily increasing the rates because you never want to tell a farmer, hey, I'm going to get you to spend the money on your cover crop seed then I'm gonna get you to spend additional money to buy more nitrogen to compensate for what it's doing from a nitrogen standpoint. And so we've started evaluating, adjusting the timing of the application of nitrogen. So according to our extension recommendations, it would be split applications with more in season to offset the risk associated with pre-plant nitrogen applications, but we're going against that to offset immobilization early on and applying nitrogen, more nitrogen earlier in the season. And we've seen about a 200 pound lint yield increase with upping our nitrogen rates pre-plant or shortly after emergence. Now, 200 pounds is significant. Yeah. Oh especially, yeah. Especially yeah. in y'all's neck of the woods. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a, uh, and with current cotton prices, that's good money. Exactly. For just moving the time of doing something, you're, it costs you nothing to just change time. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, my husband, Mr. Negative Nancy, he... Uh, hey, just for the, the listeners out here, her husband also has a two degrees from Texas A&M in he agronomy. So he, he is not <laughs> just a dummy. Like, he chooses to be on me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we do. We, we have really good conversations about crop management fertility management. But anyways, his argument with the early season applications more is a timing aspect from a farmer. So, you know, yeah. trying to get all their acres planted, plus coming back and putting out some nitrogen. He, he thinks it'll be a bit difficult. So we're still, still working on that. Yeah. But So would banding, this would be another case where banding of your fertilizer is a good, um, is would you better than broadcast most okay. definitely okay. yes no i would yeah. agree and there's an i don't know you know the farmers that y'all are working with if they're applying uh dry fertilizer urea or are they banding depends, uam depends on the price you know yeah um a lot of it's been dry the last few years because of the price mm -hmm. um, and the ease of doing it too you know you yeah. hire somebody and they come do it and you're done yeah um but we see everything so and you get closer to central Kansas where Kevin's dad works, they're even doing dry strip till. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, we, which I, we do have I, a few I, rigs out here doing that as well. Cool. I, yeah. I mean, I think that is, I keep trying to get customers to do that all the time. I know yeah. it's a huge investment, but I mean, most of my guys have liquid rigs. We're doing liquid strip till because we have very calcareous soils. Yeah. So at that, a lot of, there's some guys that are so calcareous. It's, it's just put nitrogen out. Don't waste your money on anything else, you know? I mean, it's, so, you know, speaking of calcareous soils, something that your guys probably do need to be thinking about is um, ammonia volatilization. And that's something with a cover crop where you're adding additional organic material to the soil, you're going to have greater urease production, which can um, cause greater potential volatilization losses. I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So you're saying is we need to somehow get ammonium nitrate back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good luck. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, man, okay. Oh, never mind. Uh, so, so with your research so far, this has not been anything that's your, your, 
cover crop has not been grazed, correct? Like, no, it not hasn't. dealing with anything cow, you know, like, because mm. I know a lot of, uh, a lot of farmers will see the benefit if they can get a pound of beef off of that, mm -hmm. you know, and, and see the value in using, you know, your turnips or tillage radishes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to, to see if you were, uh, doing anything with the grazing or if it was just for farm practices just farm practices at this point um well that, if you need a plot where they're putting turnips and grazing sheep on it oh. happen to have access to that yeah conversations are definitely going that direction but again it comes to a timing thing especially yeah. in this part of texas is are you gonna have enough time to graze it oh for sure from November to March or April when you need to terminate the cover crop or get the cows off so you can plant cotton. So I'd be interested to see how the guys in Kansas are, are making that work. i tell you what, when I, dual purpose wheat between Oklahoma and Kansas, I think it was, I mean, I'm sure it was invented there, but there's a lot of acres of that going on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tough to, um, the old adage is tough to cowboy and farm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. Uh, yeah. You, you can't do both well, or most yeah. people can't. So not yeah. saying it can't be done, but I mean. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to, it's hard to hitch up a, a plow to a saddle, I guess. Yeah. I guess they do yeah. certain things for that. That was kind of dumb. They used yeah. to all be on a horse. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I and you know, I don't want to come across as a, a negative Nancy because I do, I really do think that cover crops have a place and that they can be extremely beneficial. We just haven't yet optimized our systems to where we're going to have consistent yield benefits um, with a cover crop. Yeah. So when I guess we we've kind of pivoted, not really pivoted. We're, we're getting away from the soil health. So yep. let's go. Let's go back to that then cover crops well i guess when it comes to a soil soil health um list of, of items uh, cover crops what boxes does that check off so like soil structure i mean yeah so according to nrcs recommendations your soil health practices are supposed to enhance plant diversity, which then would feed into microbial diversity. Um, it's supposed to minimize soil disturbance, keep um, a living cover on the surface as well as a living root below ground. And that's why a lot of times it always, that conversation always goes back to cover crops because that seems to be the best way to do that. Um, and as far as the benefits, I guess those boxes that it would check, you know, I really, other than yield, you know, it checks all of the boxes and it improves your soil structure, reduces crusting, improves water and nutrient holding capacities. It, you know, it, it can potentially reduce your nutrient availability early in the season due to the immobilization processes that we've discussed. Um, and also the potential for ammonia volatilization. Um, but I think there's more positives from a soil standpoint than there are negatives, but it's just that main component of yield that we have yet to see a benefit to. Yeah. And if, if you, if we're doing something that costs additional dollars, it has to, you know, it has to pay for itself. 
exactly. And you know, okay, so we do reduce the amount of trips, the amount of recreational tillage trips across the field. You would um, think so you, that. I've seen guys plow cover crops today. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, just like, we got to incorporate this. You yeah. got to get to decompose like, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, they call it green manure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. they do. Yeah. And you know, with peanuts, and you do that, you're having a yield bump. A yeah. pretty significant one doing it. Yeah. So. And you're stimulating the processes that we've been talking about by incorporating yeah. it below ground, speeding up microbial activity. So that makes complete sense. But in our neck of the woods, one of the main reasons for implementing a cover crop is to reduce wind erosion. Oh, for and sure. so if you're going well, through and plowing it, then... If, if it wasn't for the mesquites, we would have a wind erosion problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we definitely not wide open, Ethan. Like, like we well, I mean, we'll get some wind and some fields will yeah. grab, grab their suitcases and move across the turn row. But if yeah. you go far enough outside of the pivot, you're going to hit a prickly pear or a uh, mesquite <laughs> and it will stop. See, y'all could go back to native systems. The mesquites could help with wind <laughs> erosion. They fix all sorts of nitrogen. So, I, you know, you say that. So, what. <laughs> I, I see this all the time. It's such a weird thing. We're, I know we're going on a tangent here, but if you get mesquites uh, really close, like a cornfield, I mean, with just on the other side of a turn row, um, the mesquites will grow to the moisture uh-huh. and you will have three foot tall corn. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they suck everything out of the ground. Yeah, and yeah, that's it, why I mean, nothing grows around them. I, you know, I think there. I don't know if there's some allelopathy going on there, or it's yeah. just there's nothing left. They just yeah. are mine everything, but there's there's yeah. some issues going on there. So you bring up a point about allelopathy. That's something that I hear when it comes to cover crops too, and I get questions about. And I know we keep going back to cover crops, but they play such a big role in the whole soil health aspect. So I think it's it's validated for us to talk about. But um, anyways, with with our cover crops wheat and rye being two of the most common that are planted here. A lot of times we get the question about allelopathic effects from rye. And so we started some work three years ago looking at that and we have not seen any sort of evidence to indicate that we're getting allelopathic effects on cotton from rye or wheat. Um, and it's kind of an interesting study too. I don't know, what are most of uh, y'all's farmers planting cover crops? What rates? That don't I, don't have any. I don't know. Um, okay. The few that do it around here, it's mainly for grazing. Oh, okay. So they probably are going. They plant it to graze, and then hoping they get some p- compaction relief, you know, from yeah, from yeah, radishes and stuff. But it's most of it's terminated, you know, let's say March, because then mm-hmm. we've got to turn around and get stuff in order for corn. Yeah. So we have a kind of a weird situation. We have an ex- extremely long growing season. Mm-hmm. So most yeah. of the time our wheat that is a cover crop is, and it's too, we're double cropping, you know, yeah. we're doing, yeah. Yeah. you know, do that. yeah, we're doing 80 to hundred bushel wheat. And then, I mean, well, I've seen a combine, a strip till rig and a planter in the same field, <laughs> really putting peanuts in the field. Oh. So, um, but we have started to, to dabble more with, well, in our, our peanut areas where it's, it's sandier of our corn, we will do windbreaks. I mean, mm-hmm. just, I mean, 40 pounds of spring wheat uh, yeah. or I've seen barley, I've seen rye, I've seen oats, any small grain. 
I've seen uh, guys just go get totes from the feed mill and whatever's in the, uh, the sweeping. So, you know, it's, yeah. So, um, but we have dabbled this year. First year we've started with radishes. So we have a, that radish turnip rye mix that we've, uh, that's going to be, uh, some cotton ground, mm-hmm. but water is extremely expensive here. Um, we have lots of it, but it's mostly electric motors. It's mm-hmm. very deep. So you're going to be anywhere between eight and $12 an acre inch per acre. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's just because you have it doesn't mean you necessarily want to use it. It's, yeah. So it can, uh, I mean, you're talking, you're still going to put 20 inches probably on a corn crop and 20 to two or so on a cotton crop. So, um, and as, as much as 30 on a peanut crop. So yeah. if, if you have a year like 2020 where we had seven inches of rain, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, that being said, there, there are some efforts to do a true cover crop, like turnips, mm-hmm. radishes, instead of doing a double crop, just some cost savings. Yeah. So. so we had some guys that were drilling wheat, rye up to 60 pounds per acre, just as a cover crop with no intentions of grazing, harvesting. And so that, along with the, the claims of allelopathy, stimulated some work where we were looking at seeding rates and termination timings of wheat and rye. It's really quite interesting. So seeding rate had no effect on biomass production. So no, you could plant half as much and still produce the same amount of above ground biomass. Where we saw the greatest effect on biomass production was going to be extending the termination time just two weeks. We could double the amount of biomass that was produced going from a termination time of eight weeks prior to planting cotton to six weeks prior to planting cotton. And so if we're increasing the amount of biomass produced, that's going to use more water, but it's also going to increase the amount of organic material you're adding and the potential for um, reducing the amount of nitrogen available. So there's, there's several negative aspects to increasing the amount of biomass. And it's really a, a cool, I know I'm getting nerdy here, but it's really this cool relationship between cotton lint yield and cover crop biomass production. So as you increase the amount of biomass that's produced, you decrease your cotton yield. And it's this perfect linear that not, line. That does not sound cool. That sounds <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's something to pay attention yeah, to, I mean, though, it, you know? It, it, just because it's not the data you want does not mean that it's not good data. It's good data. It's very yeah. good data because it, it's good for us to stress to our farmers that, you know, don't. It's not all about how much biomass you produce because we, we do hear that yeah. pretty often. So, so if yeah. you, um, with, with your soil health, and let's go backwards a little bit to moisture. Uh-huh. You know, um, where you're at can be very dry and it was very dry this last year. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and Ethan's part of the world is just weird because you know, they're close to water, right? We're extremely, we're extremely dry, but we have large wells. Is there a, is there a, a relationship with, with how much moisture you get in a year and soil health? Oh, that's an can, excellent question. You no, know, because like we were talking about structure earlier, right? Mm-hmm. We have had some years out here in Western Kansas where we, over the past, since 2012, we've had some droughts and, and the soil just turns into this ashy powder. 
and it's just noticeably different in the top few inches. And we always think, well, man, we don't have any structure, right? Yeah. And then as soon as we get rain and moisture, you start noticing it start to come together, but it's still not the way that it was, you know? Yeah. But And that, that's why I ask. Yeah. And so I think a lot of what you're seeing there too is, you know, yes, probably – uh, lesser amounts of organic carbon in the soil, but maybe salts as well that have oh. accumulated right there in that surface. Mm -hmm. um, we see that a lot with drought conditions where you have water movement to the surface and then um, concentration of salts that just completely um, go against any sort of improved structure. So with sodium, magnesium, you have dispersion. And so that's probably what you're seeing. But my recommendation to farmers is while we still have water in our regions, um, we should be implementing these types of practices that increase the amount of organic material that we're adding to our soils because it can help counterbalance, you know, the salts that we're adding to our soil with our irrigation water. And just because the, the organic material is going to serve to improve the overall structure, it's going to enhance aggregate formation, uh, clotting in the soil. So it's going to improve um, all the water dynamics, definitely. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, there's a way that you can get rid of that salt, Kevin. Rain? <laughs> no, you flip it. You bury it deep down about the bottom. <laughs> Back to the deep tillage, are we? Deep yeah. tillage. <laughs> no. Yeah, but you're so, just you're just postponing the issues you're gonna have from hey, this. Hey, you just you bury those skeletons and deep in the back of that closet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a problem for another day. Don't, don't yeah. worry about it. But you know, that, I'm glad you brought that up, Kevin, because um I remember uh talking to y'all y'all uh the guys up there. Um when y'all had some drought busting moisture, I guess maybe fifteen or something. You maybe not say drought busting, y'all had a wet spring. Yeah, yeah. And then there was talks about the soil having became hydrophobic. Like the top hmm. few inches. Do you remember that, Kevin? Well, I mean, I don't remember that, but you do. I, I don't know if it would be hydrophobic, but it definitely takes a lot of water to get things back in order before yeah, it, it, before it, it actually pen, uh, um, percolates through the soil profile. Yeah, it had been so dry for so long. There were some areas that the like Kevin was saying, it was just kind of pooling and not yeah percolating. So. And I, I bet you anything that if you would have taken some soil samples and we would have looked at electrical conductivity at that surface of the soil, it would have been ridiculously high. I bet you just had salts concentrating there at the surface. That's yeah. probably, yeah. Could you, would it have been a prime place to do the, the Joe Dirt, you know, to make the glass, you know, with the lighting <laughs> strike? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It was, it was it was very you know if it could uh, conduct electricity well you know yeah. make a bigger pane of glass so. yeah there you sorry, go sorry that is a callback from uh, an episode a long time ago um, <laughs> so uh, back to soil health soil health and away from Joe Dirt um, yeah. so we've talked about cover crops we talked about structure salt um, and a little bit about the the practicalness or practicality I guess of soil health. Um, so where, where, do, where, I guess, where do we go from here? I mean, so I like to suggest that, you know, you have to try things, you have to figure out what works on your farm. 
because soul texture can make the biggest difference in what response you see to um, implementing conservation practices. Sandier soils, it seems like that's where you have the biggest issue with um, implementing cover crops and nutrient availability. Clay soils, not nearly as much. And so it's really about figuring out what works on your farm. Um, I, as I've mentioned multiple times, I do think that cover crops have a major role to play in conservation and soil health. Um, it's just optimizing on for your operation. Yeah, essentially we're just um, creating crop diversity, right? Yes, you know, um, exactly. Because we see here where I've got a lot of fields that I, I, a lot of people don't remember how long they've been corn. And yeah. I'm sure in your part of the world, it can be that All way. Cotton. Yeah. yeah. And you start introducing just wheat, you know, to rotate your insects. You have less insect problems, you know, and yeah, it, it can be, and you do see a yield bump because of it. Mm -hmm. Are introducing different crops within the system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with a grower today that he, he was feeling pretty guilty because he was going to have cotton on the piece of ground two years in a row. <laughs> uh, uh, even I'm in the same boat. Where I grew up, there was no such thing as having cotton on cotton. It was rotation. Yeah. <laughs> and then I met my yeah. husband and I was like, dude, what? Well, they also <laughs> don't have cotton root rot. Yeah, uh, no, they no. don't. Y'all need some of that. You need some bull weevils too. I'll bring no. some next, on the next. No, yeah, we have plenty of issues. It's called no water. Yeah, that's, that's a big you know, one. <laughs> water comes at a price. You have a lot of disease and a lot of bugs. Yeah, that's true. We do have yeah. other diseases though. That's true. Yeah. But, um, so, um, oh, Kevin, I had some notes here. What do you got? I'm searching through mine to see if there's um, anything. Let's, let's go to the the topic we were discussing before this with uh, the relationship between like nutrient management and soil uh -huh. health. Maybe touch on that. Okay. So based on the, the research that we've done, we would um, suggest that where you are implementing a cover crop or um, some sort of soil health type practice where you're adding additional organic material to the soil, that you do have to keep in mind your nutrient management practices. Yeah. And so, you know, most people would um, say that we could reduce our nitrogen inputs, our phosphorus inputs, but I think it really goes back to the inherent system that you're working in. If it is a system with low organic carbon, um, you're stimulating the microbial activity with the addition of that organic material and so there's going to be a reduction in plant available nitrogen due to the microbial processes. And so um, based on our research, it would indicate that if we adjust the timing of that application, moving it to earlier in the season, that's where you're going to see the greatest crop response. Um, and then there's also different aspects. So I've worked a lot on potassium as well. And I think that may be something we're going to discuss in a future podcast. But, you know, a lot of, of what I think uh, plays into potassium limitations and responses that we see is going to go back to soil structure. Um, you know, if your roots can't percolate through the soil, if they're um, hitting a compaction layer, that's most likely going to reduce the amount of potassium that's being taken up by the plants. And so in that case, um, some of your soil health practices like radishes and turnips, things like that, that could break through that compaction layer may improve the use efficiency of potassium by the crop. Um, 
phosphorus is another one which kind of mix thought so potassium can get stratified in the soil pretty bad and especially in no-till systems where you have you know the top three inches you can have really high phosphorus levels and then it quickly is reduced as you move through the soil profile and so in that case you really have to pay attention to the placement of your phosphorus, especially in a no-till system, um, maybe putting it six to eight inches below the soil surface, that would help improve um, uptake and use efficiency of that nutrient. If you don't just want to flip it and bury it. <laughs> it goes completely against soil health practices. <laughs> uh, structure, well, never heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> who, who needs that? Yeah. yeah. No, um, but you know, we're, we're in a very strange environment where we do all of the tillage practices, Yeah. you know, depending on the crop, some are reduced or some are strip till, um, some are no till, some are recreationally tilled. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, so I, I guess I don't have too much experience with that, the stratification of that. Um, but I guess like you're saying that banding can quickly, um, fix that problem. Yeah. Well, I think that's why, that's why you hear the ter buzz term minimum till anymore. I mean, there used yeah. to be a push for no till and then probably for the same reasons that Katie's alluding to, like, you've got to turn it every now and again, you know, mm -hmm. to, to mix it up to mix it up so yeah and we see the the problem that we have especially in our sandier soils is movement of clay particles deeper in the profile and so we just get way too sandy on the surface yeah and so again yeah. turning that soil over <laughs> hey, you acted like it was a bad thing earlier i know i know occasionally yeah. the, the, the clay that you do have on top probably belonged to your neighbor at one point probably yeah, yeah. So. or like 200 miles away so than yeah. New Mexico. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, outside of, you know, utilizing cover crops, um, crop diversity, uh, what are some other strategies, you know, to, you know, to try and keep, keep soil health? Yeah. Um, um, I think monitoring what you're doing from an irrigation standpoint too we can add lots of salts through our irrigation water so that's something to keep in mind um, so something about irrigation water that i try to tell my customers too is just because it's a salt doesn't mean it's sodic yeah exactly uh, yeah so not salts are a large broad compassing thing that has lots of issues associated with it so like we're let's have a salt conversation separate from the sodic conversation because that Chloride, especially in cotton, is not very friendly. No. And that can be associated with magnesium. And mm -hmm. so um, now to combat that, we have calcium. So we put large quantities of sulfur and okay. can, can do some of that. So I do want to get to sulfur in a minute, but sorry, keep yeah. going on your, your water talk. Uh, <laughs> to, just to touch on what you just said though before I go on so magnesium can be just as detrimental as sodium at high enough concentration so we think of sodium as you know the dispersing agent and magnesium can do the same exact thing and so you have to find that balance I guess um, but irrigation is one component <laughs> I don't even remember what your question was now. Oh, we're talking about other, <laughs> other management. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so there over the last couple of years, and I'm sure y'all are very familiar with this, but there's lots of biological products 
that are available to farmers. Um, I I'm not sure how I'm going to navigate this conversation with being with uh, minding my manners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're probably on the same page. But, um, so I'll, I'll say it politically correct, Ethan. Thank you. Do, do not do not count on me being that person to say okay. that. So we, I need to rely on you. No. So you know, I had a, a microbiology professor that said um, that there's a reason that certain microbes are where they're at. And so if we take all of these products and we try adding to the, them to the soil, most likely they're not going to survive. Yeah. Um, I've never, I never, yeah, that's, yeah. They're not meant to live in that sort of environment. What's there is there because they're supposed to be there. And, um, so I, I personally don't think that, you know, adding, <laughs> A very small amount of something to this huge large pool is really going to be beneficial and i think that's what we're doing with biologicals um, we could get on the topic of humic acids things like that the amount of carbon that you're adding with any sort of humic fulvic acid is going to be minute compared to just adding corn into your rotation and yeah. the the carbon that you're going to get from that residue. So I really think soil health doesn't go back to, you know, inputs, biologicals that you're adding, but more just from good management practices. So when you you're, you mentioned folic and um, humic acid, do you think there is um, benefits to the not necessarily the carbon you're getting from those, but from uh, if you have calcareous soils by just having an acidic product in your strip-till blend. Okay. So is that something that we've heard is if you lower the pH, you're going to start, you will protect the products from being bound to the soil because that you're creating a thicker barrier of of acid within that calcareous. Yeah, I need that. to send you a presentation. Does that make any sense what I just said? No, yeah, no, it does. Okay, so, sorry. Uh, so I've put the pen to paper and done the actual calculations with, you know, as far as how much carbon you're adding and how much acid you're adding to the soil and the true effect that you're going to have on soil pH. And it's so small. Um, you're going to get a greater acidification effect from just adding an ammonium-based fertilizer. Wow. Do you remember that from huh. your fertility class, Ethan? I do. I, every fertilizer blend that I produce has at least 100 pounds AMS in it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So ammonium-based fertilizers, you're going to get way more acidification um, than you would from adding a humic or fulvic acid. Not to say they don't have their place. I mean, maybe there are, you know, if a farmer has tried it and he's confident in the results, then I don't try to discourage that. Um, but I, I have not seen any results that would encourage my husband to add that to his practice. So what I heard is it was just not a strong enough acid. We got to go to sulfuric and hydrochloric is what I just heard. Yeah. And you know, like people are always amazed after they flush their drip systems with phosphoric acid, they see these yield bumps and it's because not only are they flushing out the lines, but they're adjusting the pH right there in the root zone and they're going to have greater availability of micronutrients and yeah so. 
Yeah, and the the, uh, the lines are functioning properly. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the greatest fertilizer is H two O. Yeah. yeah. So so um, where does sulfur come in to play with soil health and uh, cover crops and things like that? Because down here, sulfur is um, not really. It's like a, everyone loves sulfur here. I mean, yeah. it, is, it, it it seems to help us you know, everything is going to have 20 to 30 pounds go out of sulfur um, in most of our blends. So, yeah. So what is the reason for that? I mean, is, does soil tests indicate that y'all are short on sulfur or is it something else? Well, you know, so with peanuts, um, it's kind of, you know, with the calcium availability, mm -hmm. we have found that we can kind of, we're seeing similar results the, uh, with that as we would with putting out gypsum. Okay. Um, and then it's just a more effective way to deliver those benefits than, yeah. than spending days on two rows at a time putting gypsum out, you know? Yeah. Um, and then our corn has responded really well to it. Yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, it, it seems to be a healthier, greener corn that uh, we've seen between five to 10 bushel increase by adding that that sulfur into the mix. And so sulfur and nitrogen are going to be very similar as far as what reactions take place in the soil. And so it's possible that, you know, you do have some microbial responses, things that are going on that um, you're offsetting those reactions with the addition of sulfur. We see somewhat of the opposite here. So um, yes, very similar to nitrogen in that, you know, you may not have very much in the top zero to six inch, but if you take a deeper sample, um, like nitrate, you're going to find quite a bit at that 24 to 36 inch depth, um, because it moves as sulfate, it moves just like nitrate would in the soil. Um, and so a lot of guys will apply it and not see the response to it because they do have um, deeper concentrations of sulfur that those plants are able to access. Okay. Well, that may be why it works for us because in some places the soil is not quite that deep. So yeah, <laughs> we're, well, we're, yeah. At, we're at the native parent material. Level yeah. at that point. <laughs> it is straight limestone. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, oh, which I didn't think about that. I mean, that's maybe that's why we're seeing benefits. We're actually using what we're putting out. Yeah. So that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, um, well, what next guys? Um, do we have any? Uh, um, Go ahead. Well, uh, so another thing, I know I keep referring back to things you read in magazines, but it does seem like, you know, they try to generalize the whole idea of soil health and cover crops. And it's this one practice that you can implement across the U.S. and you're going to have the same results regardless of what you are. And it goes back to, you know, not only just from, you know, one region to the next, but I think with even within a region, it's going to be very localized as far as what's going to work for you and what's not. But an example of that overgeneralization is a colleague of mine read in a magazine that, you know, cover crops are just really beneficial because they pull that, that extra moisture out of the soil. And so you don't have, you know, anaerobic conditions when you go to plant your cash crop. Now, I don't know about you two, but we have never had that case 
in the high plains of Texas where we needed to pull any moisture out of the soil. So it really is a localized thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure in some areas of the world, when oh, yeah. that probably is a very viable yeah. um, benefit. But Yeah, well, and if you think about it, even from the standpoint of nitrate, nitrate leaching. So if you have a cover crop, that's going to utilize that moisture, it's gonna keep from losing the nitrogen due to leaching. It's gonna incorporate yeah, it into yeah. its biomass. And, and you could potentially good. use that in enough, maybe yeah. not the next cash crop, but the one maybe after that. Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of benefits. It's just depending on it's, what It's like a little giving. external hard drive of nitrogen, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. but, um, no, man. Um, I know we've covered a lot. Um, I'm not sure where we're at on time. Do you know, Kevin? It's probably about time to wrap yeah. things up. Is there anything else, Katie, that you would like to share that we haven't hit? I know we've kind of we've jumped around a lot, but I think it's been yeah. a good conversation. So, um, no, I think I've said everything I wanted. Okay. Well. Um, Thank you for coming on. Uh, do you have any socials with your research that you would like to share? Do y'all have any, I don't know, Instagrams, Facebooks, Twitters that uh, the university or your program do things on? Yeah, so I have a personal uh, Facebook page and Twitter page that are both used for uh, work purposes as well. But the Lubbock Research Center does have a Facebook page, and we like to share research findings, what's going on in the area on that okay yeah. um where can we find you at on that if you want to tell people i don't even know what the like <laughs> that's all right so, <laughs> sorry in the meantime kevin why don't you throw the people our our stuff yes you can reach us at media at cropquest.com um we're on facebook at cropquest inc and um we're on twitter at CropQuest Inc. And we'd love to hear your questions, comments. And if you guys got any um, questions or that you would like us to maybe rehash on this uh, matter, just uh, drop us an email. Yeah, was, we will have Katie back. Um, she's, we're going to have, we have some more episodes in the works with her um, to keep continuing to talk about fertility because it's uh Something that's easily overlooked, but is if you don't start right and have the, the right groceries for your crop, it's not gonna it's not gonna be very good for the longevity of your of your farm. So exactly. And in the meantime, if you want to contact me via email, it's katie.lewis at ag.tamu.edu, or you can find me on Twitter at Texas Soil Fert. There we go. With that, thanks again, Katie. We'll yep. See thank you time. very much. Thank you, guys. Our business is knowing the business of growing. We take pride in your success, being better than the rest. Crop West.